Chapter Twelve of Storm Over Warlock by Andre Norton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Storm Over Warlock, Chapter Twelve, The Veil of Illusion. Perhaps his status was that of a prisoner, but Shan was too tired to press for an explanation. He was content to be left alone in the unusual, circular, but roofless, room of the structure to which they had brought him. There was a thick, mat-like pallet in one corner, short for the length of his body, but softer than any bed he had rested on since he had left the Terran camp before the coming of the throgs. Above him glimmered those patches of light symbolizing the lost stars. He blinked at them until they all ran together, in bands like the jeweled coils, on Warlockian bodies. Then he slept, dreamlessly. The Terran awoke with all his senses alert. Some silent alarm might have triggered that instant awareness of himself and his surroundings. There had been no change in the star pattern still overhead. No one had entered the round chamber. Shan rolled over on his mat bed conscious that all his aches had vanished. Just as his mind was clearly active, so did his body also respond effortlessly to his demands. He was not aware of any hunger or thirst, though a considerable length of time must have passed since he had made his mysteriously contrived exit from the outer world. In spite of the humidity of the air, his ragged garments had dried on his body. Shan got to his feet, trying to order the sorry remnants of his uniform, eager to be on the move. Though to where, and for what purpose, he could not have answered. The door through which he had entered remained closed, refusing to yield to his push. Shan stepped back, eyeing the distance to the top of the partition between the roofless rooms. The walls were smooth with the gloss of a seashell's interior, but the exuberant confidence which had been with him since his awakening refused to accept such a minor obstacle. He made two test leaps, both times his fingers striking the wall well below the top of the partition. Shan gathered himself together, as might a cat, and tried the third time, putting into that effort every last ounce of strength determination, and will. He made it, though his arms jerked as the weight of his body hung from his hands. Then a scramble, a knee hooked over the top, and he was perched on the wall, able to study the rest of the building. In shape, the structure was unlike anything he had seen on his home world, or reproduced in any of the Tri-D records of survey accessible to him. The rooms were either circular or oval, each separated from the next by a short passage, so that the overall impression was that of ten strings of beads radiating from a central knot of one large chamber, all with the uniform nacre walls and a limited amount of furnishings. As he balanced on the narrow perch, Shan could sight no other movement in the nearest line of rooms, those connected by corridors with his own. He got to his feet to walk the tightrope of the upper walls toward that inner chamber, which was the heart of the Warlockian palace? Town? Apartment dwelling? At least it was the only structure on the island, for he could see the outer rim of that smooth, soft sand ringing it about. The island itself was curiously symmetrical, 
a perfect oval, too perfect to be a natural outcrop of sand and rock. There was no day or night here in the cavern. The light from the roof patches remained constantly the same, and that flow was abetted within the building by a soft radiation from the walls. Shan reached the next room in line, hunkering down to see within it. To all appearances, the chamber was exactly the same as the one he had just left. There were the same unadorned walls, a thick mat bed against the far side, and no indication whether it was in use or had not been entered for days. He was on the next section of corridor wall when he caught that faint taint in the air, the very familiar scent of wolverines. Now it provided Shan with a guide, as well as a promise of allies. The next bead-room gave him what he wanted. Below him, Taggy and Togi paced back and forth. They had already torn to bits the sleeping-mat which had been the chamber's single furnishing, and their temper was none too certain. As Shan squatted well above their range of vision, Taggy reared against the opposite wall, his claws finding no hold on the smooth coating of its surface. They were as competently imprisoned as if they had been dropped into a huge fishbowl, and they were not taking to it kindly. How had the animals been brought here? Down that water-tunnel by the same unknown method he himself had been transported, until that almost disastrous awakening in the center of the flood? The Terran did not doubt that the doors of the room were as securely fastened as those of his own further down the corridor. For the moment the wolverines were safe. He could not free them. And he was growing increasingly certain that if he found any of his native jailers it would be at the center of that wheel of rooms and corridors. Shan made no attempt to attract the animal's attention, but kept on along his tightrope path. He passed two more rooms, both empty, both differing in no way from those he had already inspected. And then he came to the central chamber, four times as big as any of the rest and with a much brighter wall-light. The Terran crouched, one hand on the surface of the partition-top as an additional balance, the other gripping his stunner. For some reason his captors had not disarmed him. Perhaps they believed they had no necessity to fear his off-world weapon. "'Have you grown wings?' The words formed in his brain, bringing with them a sense of calm amusement to reduce all his bold exploration to the level of a child's first staggering steps. Shan fought his first answering flare of pure irritation. To lose even a fraction of control was to open a door for them. He remained where he was, as if he had never heard that question, surveying the room below with all the impassiveness he could summon. Here the walls were no smooth barrier, but honeycombed with niches in a regular pattern, and in each of the niches rested a polished skull, a non-human skull. Only the outlines of those ranked bones were familiar for just so had looked the great purple-red rock where the wheeling flyers issued from the eye-sockets. A rock island had been fashioned into a skull, by design or nature. And upon closer observation the Terran could see that there was a difference among these ranked skulls, 
a mutation of coloring from row to row, a softening of outline, perhaps by the wearing of time. There was also a table of dull black, rising from the flooring on legs which were not more than a very few inches high, so that from his present perch the board appeared to rest on the pavement itself. Behind the table, in a row, as shopkeepers might await a customer, three of the Warlockians, seated cross-legged on mats, their hands folded primly before them. And at the side, a fourth, the one whom he had trapped on the island. Not one of those spiked heads rose to view him, but they knew that he was there. Perhaps they had known the very instant he had left the room or cell in which they had shut him. And they were so very sure of themselves. Once again Shan subdued a spark of anger. That same patience, with its core of stubborn determination, which had brought him to Warlock, backed his moves now. The Terran swung down, landing lightly on his feet, facing the three behind the table, towering well over them as he stood erect, yet gaining no sense of satisfaction from that merely physical fact. "'You have come.' The words sounded as if they might be a part of some polite formula, so he replied in kind and aloud. "'I have come.' Without waiting for their bidding, he dropped into the same cross-legged pose, fronting them now on a more equal level across their dead black table. "'And why have you come, Star Voyager?' That thought seemed to be a concentrated effort from all three, rather than any individual questioning. "'And why did you bring me?' He hesitated, trying to think of some polite form of address those he knew which were appropriate to their sex on other worlds, seemed incongruous when applied to the bizarre figures now facing him. "'Wise ones,' he finally chose. Those unblinking yellow eyes conveyed no emotion. Certainly his human gaze could detect no change of expression on their non-human faces. "'You are male.' "'I am,' he agreed not seeing just what that fact had to do with either diplomatic fencing or his experiences of the immediate past. "'Where, then, is your thought-guider?' Shan puzzled over that conception, guessed at its meaning. "'I am my own thought-guider,' he retorted stoutly, with all the conviction he could manage to put into that reply. Again he met a yellow-green stare, but he sensed a change in them. Some of their complacency had ebbed. His reply had been as a stone dropped into a quiet pool, sending ripples out afar to disturb the customary mirror surface of smooth serenity. "'The star-born one speaks the truth!' That came from the Warlockian who had been his first contact. "'It would appear that he does.' The agreement was measured, and Shan knew that he was meant to overhear that. "'It would seem, readers of the rods,' the middle one of the triumvirate at the table spoke now, "'that all living things do not follow our pattern of life. 
But that is possible. A male who thinks for himself, unguided, who dreams, perhaps. Or who can understand the truth of dreaming? Strange, indeed, must be his people. Sharers of my visions, let us consult the old ones concerning this. For the first time, one of those crested heads moved, the gaze shifted from Shan to the ranks of the skulls, pausing at one. Shan, ready for any wonder, did not betray his amazement when the ivory inhabitant of that particular niche moved, lifted from its small compartment, and drifted buoyantly through the air to settle at the right-hand corner of the table. Only when it had safely grounded did the eyes of the Warlockian move to another niche on the other side of the curving room, this time bringing up from close to floor level a time-darkened skull to occupy the left corner of the table. There was a third shifting from the weird storehouse, a last skull to place between the other two. And now the youngest native arose from her mat to bring a bowl of green crystal. One of her seniors took it in both hands, making a gesture of offering it to all three skulls, and then gazed over its rim at the Terran. "'We shall cast the rods, man who thinks without a guide. Perhaps then we shall see how strong your dreams are, to be bent to your using, or to break you for your impudence.' Her hands swayed the bowl from side to side and there was an answering whisper from its interior, as if the contents slid loosely there. Then one of her companions reached forward and gave a quick tap to the bottom of that container, spilling out upon the table a shower of brightly colored slivers, each an inch or so long. Shan, staring at the display in bewilderment, saw that, in spite of the seeming carelessness of that toss, the small needles had spread out on the blank surface to form a design in arrangement and color. And he wondered how that skillful trick had been accomplished. All three of the Warlockians bent their heads to study the grouping of the tiny sticks, their young subordinate leaning forward also, her eagerness less well controlled than her elders. And now, it was as if a curtain had fallen between the Terran and the aliens. All sense of communication which had been with him since he had entered the skull-lined chamber was summarily cut off. A hand moved, making the jeweled pattern, braceleting the wrist and extending up the arm, flash subdued fire. Fingers swept the sticks back into the bowl. Four pairs of yellow eyes raised to regard Shan once more but the blanket of their withdrawal still held. The youngest Warlockian took the bowl from the elder who held it, stood for a long moment with it resting between her palms, fixing Shan with an unreadable stare. Then she came toward him. One of those at the table put out a restraining hand. This time Shan did not master his start as he heard the first audible voice which had not been his own. The skull at the left hand on the table, by its yellowed color the oldest of those summoned from the niches, was moving, moving because its jaws gaped and then snapped, emitting a faint bleat which might have been a word or two. 
She who would have halted the young Warlockian's advance withdrew her hand. Then her fingers curled in an unmistakable beckoning gesture. Shan came to the table, but he could not quite force himself near that chattering skull, even though it had stopped its jig of speech. The bowl of sticks was offered to him. Still no message from mind to mind, but he could guess at what they wanted of him. The crystal substance was not cool to the touch as he had expected. Rather, it was warm, as living flesh might feel. And the colored sticks filled about two-thirds of the interior, lying all mixed together without any order. Shan concentrated on recalling the ceremony the Warlockian had used before the first toss. She had offered the bowl to the skulls in turn. The skulls! But he was no consulter of skulls. Still holding the bowl close to his chest, Shan looked up over the roofless walls at the star map on the roof of the cavern. There, that was Rama, and to its left, just a little above, was Tyr's system, where swung the stark world of his birth, and of which he had only few good memories, but of which he was a part. The Terran raised the bowl to that spot of light which marked Tyr's pale sun. Smiling with a wry twist, he lowered the bowl, and on impulse of pure defiance, he offered it to the skull that had shattered. Immediately he realized that the move had had an electric effect upon the aliens. Slowly at first, and then faster, he began to swing the bowl from side to side, the needle slipping, mixing within. And as he swung it, Shan held it out over the expanse of the table. The Warlockian who had given him the bowl was the one who struck it on the bottom, causing a rain of splinters. To Shan's astonishment, mixed as they had been in the container, they once more formed a pattern, and not the same pattern the Warlockians had consulted earlier. The dampening curtain between them vanished. He was in touch, mind to mind, once again. So be it. The center Warlockian spread out her four-fingered, thumbless hands above the scattered needles. What is red is red. Again a formula. He caught a chorus of answer from the others. What is red is red. To the dreamer the dream. Let the dream be known for what it is, and there is life. Let the dream encompass the dreamer falsely, and all is lost. Who can question the wisdom of the old ones? asked their leader. We are those who read the messages they send, out of their mercy. This is a strange thing they bid us do, man, open for you our own initiate's road to the veil of illusion. That way has never been for males, who dream without set purpose, and have not the ability to know true from false, have not the courage to face their dreams to the truth. Do so, if you can." There was a flash of mockery in that, combined with something else, stronger than distaste, not as strong as hatred, but certainly not friendly. She held out her hands, and Shan saw now, lying on a slowly closing palm, a disk 
such as the one Thorvald had shown him. The Terran had only one moment of fear, and then came blackness, more absolute than the dark of any night he had ever known. Light once more, green light, with an odd shimmering quality to it. The skull-lined walls were gone. There were no walls, no building held him. Shan strode forward, and his boots sank in sand, that smooth satin sand which had ringed the island in the cavern. But he was certain he was no longer on that island, even within that cavern, though far above him there was still a dome of roof. The source of the green shimmer lay to his left. Somehow he found himself reluctant to turn and face it. That would commit him to action. But Shan turned. A veil, a veil of rippling green. Material? No, rather mist or light. A veil depending from some source so far over his head that its origin was hidden in the upper gloom a veil which was a barrier he must cross. With every nerve protesting, Shan walked forward, unable to keep back. He flung up his arm to protect his face as he marched into that stuff. It was warm, and the gas, if gas it was, left no slick of moisture on his skin in spite of its foggy consistency. And it was no veil or curtain for although he was already well into the murk, he saw no end to it. Blindly he trudged on, unable to sight anything but the rolling billows of green, pausing now and again to go down on one knee and pat the sand underfoot, reassured at the reality of that footing. And when he met nothing menacing, Shan began to relax. His heart no longer labored. He made no move to draw the stunner or knife. Where he was, and for what purpose, he had no idea. But there was a purpose in this, and that the Warlockians were behind it, he did not doubt. The Initiate's Road, the leader had said, and the conviction was steady in his mind that he faced some test of alien devising. A cavern with a green veil his memory awoke. Thorvald's dream! Shan paused, trying to remember how the other had described this place. So he was enacting Thorvald's dream! And could the survey officer now be caught in Shan's dream in turn, climbing up somewhere into the nose-slit of a skull-shaped mountain? Green fog without end, and Shan lost in it. How long had he been here? Shan tried to reckon time, the time since his coming into the water-world of the starred cavern. He realized that he had not eaten, nor drank, nor desired to do so either, nor did he now. Yet he was not weak. In fact, he had never felt such tireless energy as possessed his spare body. Was this all a dream? his threatened drowning in the underground stream a nightmare? Yet there was a pattern in this, just as there had been a pattern in the needles he had spilled across the table. One even led to another with discernible logic. Because he had tossed that particular pattern, he had come here. 
according to the ambiguous instructions or warnings of the Warlockian witch, his safety in this place would depend upon his ability to tell true dreams from false. But how? Why? So far he had done nothing except walk through a green fog, and for all he knew he might well be travelling in circles. Because there was nothing else to do, Shan walked on, his boots pressing sand, rising from each step with a small sucking sound. Then, as he stooped to search for some indication of a path or road which might guide him, his ears caught the slightest of noises. Other small sucking whispers. He was not the only wayfarer in this place. End of chapter 12